Yes, it's that time of year again. Of course, we love WKRP all year long, but especially now as we get closer to Thanksgiving and recall that incredibly funny episode. Did you know we have five different WKRP designs, including three different turkey drop-inspired ones? Simply go to CincyShirts.com and type WKRP into the search bar and have a look. Use the promo code at the end of this episode to save 20% on your entire order online or in-store. Now, on with the show. WKRP in Cincinnati. This is WCPO FM 1051 on your FM dial, Cincinnati, Ohio. WKRC, Cincinnati. This is the nation station. Hi again, everyone, and welcome to the Cincy Shirts Podcast. It's episode 190. Today on our show, Jeff Cease. One of the first stories I ever did was about um, Frontier World, a yeah, proposed um, amusement park by Fess Parker. But back then, I only had about 200 words of space to write about. So a few months ago, I was like, oh, you know, let me revisit that and go deeper into the archives and, and information and, and kind of blew it up to be a more solid story. He's the librarian for the Cincinnati Inquirer, a California transplant who talks about what a newspaper librarian does, didn't even know that was such a thing, baseball, the very famous director from his hometown, and much more. Now, if you've been liking the podcast, you can help support it via PayPal or Venmo. Simply use podcast at cincyshirts.com and chip in whatever you feel is fair. Also, be sure to listen to that special promo code for 20% off at the end of the episode. Now let's talk to Jeff Cease. C-I-N-C-I-N-N-A-T-I-Cincinnati. She came down Cincinnati. So I, I didn't realize the Inquirer had a historian. Yeah, of a sort. <laughs> so what does your job yeah. entail? Well, I have kind of uh, multiple roles. Um, as I've been the last of the library staff for the last, uh, oh goodness, 12 years now. Um, and, you know, you, you, the role evolves to do other things. So technically, I'm um, actually the reporter now, and I do a history column um, on Sundays and other history writing, and then um, still keep the archives. But yeah, at this point, kind of the writing's more the bulk of the job, and the archives is you know, what I can manage to fit in when I'm not on deadline. So are you from Cincinnati? I guess we should get that, that out of the way. Actually, no. Um, I'm from California, initially. Oh, okay. Um, I grew up in Modesto, California, which is about 100 miles from San Francisco. And I went to school in San Francisco and then uh, moved out here in 98. My wife and I uh, moved out for her to go to um, UC, CCM for grad school. Uh-huh. And I got a job with the Inquirer in April of 1999, and I've been there ever since. So Modesto, California, uh, where American Graffiti takes place. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, went to the same high school George Lucas went to, and uh, that was kind of a big deal. Oh, wow. In, uh, oh, yeah, it's there's a little uh, plaza. Um, it's a very small plaza compared to you know some of the big statues and stuff we have in Cincinnati, but they have this little called Lucas Plaza, and it's kind of a triangle of land, and they have a statue of the front end of, a, I think it's a 57 Chevy and a couple of teenagers, 
in front of it. We used to have graffiti nights. Uh, I think they still have them, but um, where people would cruise in these classic cars down the streets. But, you know, you also get a lot of too much partying going on. So some of that has been curtailed over the years. But, uh, um, yeah, so Modesto is quite a big uh, Lucas thing. He also went to the same junior college I went to. Um, and, you know, it's just part of growing up. Is You know, like we think of, you know, the Pete Rose or Doris Day in Cincinnati. That's what George Lucas was for Modesto. Yeah, I love that movie. I forgot he was actually from Modesto as well. I, d- I did never put yeah. two and two together, but I was, oh, yeah, he is uh, from there. And that was kind of, I guess it was his first, I guess his first major film, right? Yeah, he was the second film. He did THX 1138. Um, oh, that's that right. Was, that's right. Right. And that wasn't a very successful film. Um, and then he did American Graffiti, and that blew up. And then he went in a completely different direction and did Star Wars. Right. And he went from being this independent filmmaker um, to basically making these blockbusters. And I think Francis Ford Coppola says he got derailed by Star Wars. For, <laughs> he oh, would have been sure, doing yeah. all these small little artsy films <laughs> yeah yeah for sure and it, well i guess in a way that's what uh, star wars kind of was at the beginning they didn't know it was gonna what it was gonna be at all and in fact i remember reading that uh, uh star wars fans might remember this there was a book called splinter of the mind's eye and apparently splinter of the mind's eye by alan dean foster is actually supposed to be the second movie in the event that the first movie doesn't do very well or doesn't or just does okay and they let them make a second one but they don't give them a lot of money so that was right. supposed to be the second movie instead of Empire Strikes Back. But, of course, Star Wars was the biggest movie in the planet, so they got to make Empire Strikes Back instead, and they didn't have to worry about making uh, Splinter of the Mind's Eye. But I, I should I, say that I'm a huge Star Wars fan, so uh, you know, you're talking my language today. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, we, you know, the thing about Star Wars, since we're digressing here for a second, is that we kind of forget that all of the movies up until Disney – took over were basically independent films that Lucas was paying for these himself just because they cost a hundred million dollars to make. And he was innovating all these things. They really were. And that's kind of why the, the, the tone and everything is just not like regular blockbuster movies. It's, he kind of makes them differently. Yeah, for sure. Um, we had a lot of star Wars talk, uh, last week with our, our guest who we talked about the baseball and star Wars. So, um, <laughs> should have had Josh join us on this one. Josh, a massive, Star Wars fan. But let's get back to the newspaper business. So when you get to Cincinnati, what are your impressions? Well, you know, I didn't have much of an impression of since I mean, not, not a negative one. I just didn't know that much about it. Um, you know, when I first came to town and we went, my wife and I went to like, I think it was Taste of Cincinnati or Oktoberfest or one of those. And it was like, hey, that's the fountain from the WKRP Cincinnati introduction. You know, it's like that's what you knew. You knew who the Reds were. You knew the Bengals. Um, and that fountain and WKRP and that's kind of all. And, you know, you quickly working at the Enquirer, you know, you started researching these history because these reporters, part of the job of the, in the library staff was to do research. You know, people come in and say, Oh, could you find this out about this? Could you find these old photos? And you do that next thing you know, you know quite a bit about the city. And, you know, that's how I learned the city. And so I know way more about Cincinnati than I ever did about say Modesto because, you know, you just live there and you don't pay that much attention to it. But, you know, my job was literally to read details about these things. And, and then eventually when I was asked to do some writing about it, it was like, yeah, you follow that same curiosity and you know more about it. So you were a general, general assignment reporter at first? Well, no, actually, I've just been in the library staff all these years. And then it was 2012 
they had uh, a guy left. He used to do a little weekly piece called Did You Know? And there was these things like, uh, it's kind of like, a. you remember when, you know, there used to be this, you know, Johnny Bench had his own restaurant or whatever, you know, that kind of stuff. And, um, or did you know it, the Coney Island had its own ferry and that kind of stuff. And they said, you know, oh, well, you know, you're in the library and you have to re- do research for these things anyway. Would you like to write something? And basically it's for a while it was weekly and then other job things kind of got in the way. Um, and then back just this past April or so, they asked me again to do a weekly column that they committed to it being a weekly thing. Um, so I've been basically doing it for about nine years, um, pretty either regularly or semi-regularly over that time. Um, but for those first five or six years, I was still essentially the librarian. And most of my job was archived, you know, the text and the photos. And then I would write once a week. And now... Um, as a reporter, I'm writing, you know, four or five days a week and then half a day in archiving and that kind of stuff. So what did you think of the uh, cuisine when you first got here? You said you went to Taste of Cincinnati, so I, I imagine you encountered some weird food. <laughs> well, you know, um, Cincinnati chili is always an interesting one. You know, I, it was a bit of an acquired taste for me. Uh, the first time I went, they, um, it was like, oh, this, this was fine, but... They, out in California, there is a Bob's Big Boy. It's the original Big Boy that Frisch is, is kind of spun off from. Yeah. And they have a – basically Cincinnati chili. It's called the chili spaghetti. And growing up, we used to go to uh, Bob's all the time. And my brother was a big fan of the spaghetti, chili spaghetti. So when he came to visit, we were like, oh, you got to try this Skyline chili. It's kind of like that. And he loved it. And that really kind of opened up my eyes of like – yeah, I guess it is kind of like that thing. And, and, you know, so, so that took a little bit of, of buying into, but you know, I'm on board at this point, you know, I've been here 22 years. So, you know, it's a, <laughs> enough time to, you know, essentially be a local. And, uh, but you know, the, what I like about Cincinnati is that there are a lot of unique foods. I don't mean like completely new flavors, but there's, um, you know, even somewhat chains like the Little Roses or Penn Station or those kind of things that you don't quite get everywhere else, and they're completely different than the ones I grew up in California. Um, so there's there's quite a lot of even the chains here, but then of course you know, the individual local restaurants are are terrific here. It is a very unique city uh, for food. I remember when I was in college up in Bowling Green, there was a uh, knockoff Cincinnati chili place in our dorm. And it was called Cincinnati Chili. I'm like, oh, chili, this sounds good. And I got some, and I was like, oh, dear Lord. Uh, <laughs> I had no idea. And then my wife had lived down here for a while, and then we were back in Cleveland hanging out. And she goes, I got to take you uh, to Skyline. They had a place there. And I, I ate, and I was like, ah, this, this is okay. And, and since, I have, uh, since then, I've become obsessed uh, right mm-hmm. before we moved down. And, and now, you know, so a lot of those transplants do get converted. Um, you know, yeah, to the my brother still he, he lives in Seattle and he buys you know Kansas Skyline because that's the closest you can you know there, yeah it's not quite the same having to make it your yourself but you know it's um, so he's whenever he visits that's definitely where we go yeah well you know it, it's it can be good when you make it yourself and let it uh, simmer for you know a couple hours and it's even even better the next day people say so. Yeah, I'm just not patient enough to. <laughs> I'll just so, go down to Skyline. So let me ask you: as a transplant, have you become a fan of the local teams, or is your heart still in California? 
Well, I, I really like the Reds. Um, I mean, that's it's hard with the amount of history that Cincinnati has with the Reds. You really just follow them. And I've written tons about um, all of the you know, 1919 World Series, 40. I just did one on the 61 uh, team, the um, – you know, I, I, and the grid machine, obviously, it, it just you've that it was a point early on where I'm archiving all these stories and doing all this research. And I realized that I had known Aaron Boone's batting average. And I'm like, my goodness, I guess I'm a Reds fan. But I know that <laughs> kind of stuff. And um, he used to go to games um, when it was Synergy Field. After work, I'd walk down and get, you know, five dollar seats up in the nosebleeds and, and watch games. Uh, I was there for Griffey's first game and stuff like that. So, you know. You really kind of built that up. And I used to be an A's fan growing up, but it was far uh-huh. enough away. Modesto's, you know, far enough that you don't just go for a game yet. It's still kind of a distant. But I am a huge diehard 49er fan. And uh, so while I will follow the Bengals and I like the Bengals and um, I'll still watch them every week, my heart's still in San Francisco up there. Yeah, I get it. I just, I'm just not that kind of guy. I just, I'm, my loyalties are still with my my teams and I'm not mad at the Bengals and growing up, we weren't mad at the Bengals. In fact, um, as a Browns fan, uh, they, uh, I've told the story before when the Bengals played their first game, uh, the Browns season didn't start till a week later because the leagues hadn't fully merged yet. The, the agreement had been signed, but the, the leagues weren't together yet. So the Bengals played a week before the Browns did. And a bunch of Cleveland fans came down because everybody still loved Paul Brown. Uh, they were mm-hmm. mad at him. So they came down and cheered on the Bengals. And so, uh, yeah, I don't have any animosity toward the Bengals. It is a kind of a problem that they're in the same division. But apart from that, mm-hmm. I, I ain't mad at them. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think most of the people who, frankly, are mad at them are like the people who've been fans for yeah. years and <laughs> get frustrated. Um, you know, for me, you know, I, I've got two Super Bowls on the. On the yeah, I was <laughs> well, going to say. The, the there. It's funny, Chris so, Collins yeah. was saying that last night. They showed a clip of Bill Walsh uh, uh, running some kind of practice. And Collinsworth laughing and goes, "Oh yeah, he's a great coach." He goes, "He beat me twice in the Super Bowl." So. <laughs> that's yeah, that's uh, and, and that's fun. I always kind of make sure that you know that when we talk about the uh, you know the Bengals years over there, I'll just make sure there's that line. And then the San Francisco 49ers beat them twenty six twenty one or whatever. You know. There you go. So, did you always have an interest in history, or what was kind of your interest in getting into the newspaper biz? Was it to be a reporter? Was it to, to you know to document history? What, what, what kind of was your your thinking there? Well, uh, um, actually, my uh, goals in life were to write uh, fiction. Um, I have a degree in creative writing, actually, um, and I did love American history when I was in college. I had one professor, uh, U.S. history professor, that just really made everything come to life because what he taught was not dates and things. I mean, you had to know certain dates. You had to know when the Civil War was and World War II was and stuff like that. But you didn't need to know, you know, every little tiny detail. Instead, you knew why things happened. And that really kind of made everything hit because you're like, oh, if this leads to this, that leads to this, and that's why this happens. And next thing you know, you kind of have a bigger picture of it. And uh, I, I took many classes from him. Um, and so I did a minor in history that I didn't finish because I wanted to graduate in, <laughs> in the four years. And so I, but I was close. I had all but like two classes away from minoring. And uh, so I've always loved that kind of history. And, you know, I was looking for work when uh, my wife was going to school and, you know, librarian things kind of interesting. So um, I was a library clerk, started off. We used to have a decent staff, size staff, not a decent 
good quality, but, you know, decent size. We had like five or six of us at the time. Um, and that's been whittled down to, you know, just me. And, you know, that's, I just got really fascinated by all these little things because, you know, they had these, the photo files and the clips and all these things, you know, the, the microfilm goes back to 1841. And it's really amazing to be able to go and look at a newspaper from 170 years ago. And, you know, the uh, photo files, you start going through that and you're saying like, oh, goodness, it's, you know, these terrific photos from 1952 and it's got the writing on the back of it tells you identifies who everybody is and at what date it appeared on the paper and stuff like that. So you just start really getting fascinated by those sorts of things. And I think you either have a interest in history or you don't. And if you're interested in history, all that stuff is just like being in a toy store. You know, you just want to know more about it. I know Google is in the process of digitizing newspapers across the country, and I, I guess they stopped or something, or they're no longer doing that. But uh, I still have like a, a link that I save that I can look up things when I'm doing blog posts for uh, both Cincy shirts and for old school shirts. And boy, it comes in really handy being able to dig up those firsthand newspaper accounts, because as they say, journalists write the first draft of history. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you always have to kind of read a little bit between the lines of how much you're going to trust them. You know, older papers had a often had a really implicit bias, you know, as like a Democratic paper, or Republican paper or a Whig paper, things like that. Um, but, yeah, absolutely. The digitizing of these has been a huge boost for research. Now, uh, news, uh, Gannett, which is our parent company that owns like USA Today and the Inquirer and uh, Arizona Republic and stuff like that. Um, they started digitizing the microfilm through newspapers.com several years ago. So that's a subscription service. And if you click on it's Cincinnati.com, you click on the archives link, it will send you to newspapers.com. It's like eight bucks a month, which is, you know, really not bad if you're really into like research or local history. And, um, it goes. It's the same microfilm that I have. It's just all digitized. So, frankly, I use it more often than I go to the reels. Uh, the public library has a lot of resources. The um, things like ProQuest and stuff that they have um, lot, huge sections of Cincinnati Post. Um, recently, they added the, you know, the commercial. There's New York Times. Um, all these different things, and I've used that. I mean, almost every story I do, I'm going through and looking at all these old papers for early versions of stories. Um, I just did, let's see, what was when I did recently, I did a lot of scanning. Well, I, I do so much of it that, you know, I basically, you can download those, those uh, stories and, you know, keep them in your, your files now. Um, and you just get the full picture and you can follow along. Uh, I, yeah, I did the, uh, the Cincinnati railroad, um, Cincinnati Southern railway. Um, and I was able to track the history just by looking at the key points in their history timeline and say, yep, here's the stories about voting on this. And here was the stories about how much um, it cost or your know, car stover runs or here's an editorial. And I can quote from that and I can go through multiple papers. I mean, you have to go through different sources, but still it's, it's better than having to use a time machine, I guess. <laughs> it is. It's uh, it's very handy, especially when I'm doing a lot of sports uh, writing for mm-hmm. both websites, and I know certain big events that happened, but f- uh, let's say, for example, uh, Cam- Virgil Carter was the the first guy mm-hmm. signed by the World Football League. He was the Bengals quarterback at the time, and of course, mm-hmm. it's nice to be able to go back and look at the newspaper articles from Cincinnati at the time to get a better timeline of what happened, 
Uh, same thing happened over with old school shirts. I was trying to figure out when our Cleveland Crusaders of the World Hockey Association left and when the NHL Barons moved in. So looking at all the old newspaper clippings, I could narrow mm-hmm. it down to when the Crusaders said, we're leaving, and the NHL said, hey, we're moving the, uh, who did they move? Oh, the Golden, the California Golden Seals uh, from your neck of the woods to Cleveland. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's, it's great, great to narrow things down like that so you can get a more uh, detailed view of it. Well, I did a, a piece uh, a few weeks ago on the Cincinnati Celts, which was their first NFL team. And I was able to find, you know, the box scores to the original games and a couple of times, you know, the rundown of, you know, who scored the touchdowns and things like that. Because sometimes there are more information than others. But but it was like, you know, trying to follow the games now. You can do You can really do the same thing. So is there still a need, I guess, for a librarian and archivist with everything getting all digital and stuff, or does someone still have to oversee and make sure that everything is running smoothly in regards to getting everything archived and saved? Yeah, I, I think there needs to be you know, someone overseeing it because, um, it, it, like anything, you look, it's like what Google is, right, is that if, if you just threw all the information out, you need a place to, way to be able to search it. And so while we have systems that kind of just grab photos or grab text every day, um, you have to kind of know where it is and how to, you know, market and, and categorize it. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's less than it used to be. I mean, it used to be that we would have to read stories and categorize them by different subjects and say, well, this needs to go in this file and this needs to go in this file. And now with a lot of the digital stuff, it's just like, the description of the photo is there and it's searchable and you can find later. Um, but in my case, you know, I'm able to add a lot of, you know, photos and, and information about, you know, historic things. And it's not just like history columns. It can be, you know, Hey, we're doing, we're researching the streetcar and we want to find, um, what the support was like, when the first vote was and stuff like that. It's like, well, you know, you have to know how to find that information. Um, or, Hey, do you know that we tried to do this light rail thing back in 99 or 2000 or something? You know, you can kind of go back, uh, by having someone who somewhat knowledgeable you know, institutional knowledge, as we call it. Um, and you know, kind of know where and how to look to find these things. Um, but that being said, there, it is a. Uh, there are not that many newspaper librarians left. Yeah, and I guess it's, well, really, the whole newspaper industry, of course, has kind of uh, been left in a lurch. Uh, where do you see things going? Do you think well, it'll hit a bottom, and people will say, well, we know we still need newspapers, or is it kind of, you know, with the internet, you know, I guess it's been a blessing and a curse, obviously, because you could have all this information mm-hmm. in your hands, yet nobody seems to use it properly or know how to use it or care to use it properly for that matter? Well, you know, newspapers traditionally are, you know, not just a information, but it's, it's a way to kind of more accurately, you know, we have journalistic standards to, you know, get sources and things like that where, you know, anyone can post anything on the internet. And we forget sometimes that, you know, if you were, Oh, I read this on, you know, on, Yahoo News or something like that. It's like, well, no, they don't really use reporters. They get their information from other sources, you know, whether it's Associated Press or New York Times or wherever. And so you still have reporters and you need people who are going out there in the communities and talking to people and getting the stories in the first place. Um, that's the important part of journalism. Uh, and as we 
lose newspapers and, and other kind of you know media things, we're not going to have that. We're going to get the lower quality of things. We won't really quite know what to do. Hopefully, um, they'll figure out ways to keep um, supporting that. And there's been a shift, you know, in the last five or six years or so. There's been kind of a push for more, you know, checking um, sources and things like that. But, um, you know, you also have to pay the bills somehow. You have to pay the reporters to do these things. And, you know, they, we've seen newspapers are going to more digital than actual print, some magazines like that as well. Um, and we're getting more and more where people's daily lives are spent so much on screens that um, they're maybe not going to use print. However, we're not there yet, and that's why we have still have you know lots of loyal print readers and they're a big part of our our subscriber base and supporting so just, if someone could figure out the magic way of, of essentially paying for <laughs> online content uh it's really reliably, like the way newspapers used to do that would be great <laughs> yeah it's really strange i mean i don't mind sitting through an ad to you know read a news article but what it either seems it's either one or the other it's either it's behind a paywall and like when i'm doing research for a story i, I don't know how many more times i'll need to you know access the st louis post dispatch coming up mm-hmm. so it seems silly for me to pay you know 15 20 bucks for a month subscription when i only need this one story and then on the other hand, uh, when sites are free, there are so many ads that they keep popping up and it freezes the page and you can't scroll the page and it's just a pain in the ass. And it's like, yeah. well, I'm not going to deal with that either. It's like I don't mind sitting through one. I don't mind them on the side. I don't, you, you put them all over the place. Just don't – you know. I, I'm surprised someone's able to figure out how to make it you know, when it's not behind a paywall to make it a usable – something that's usable and not cumbersome. But no one seemed to have, seemed to have gotten to that point. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think that's we're just kind of at that area where we're trying things out, um, you know, and saying, well, you know, we've, I know we've been doing some um, experimenting, if you will, with how much content is behind a paywall and how much isn't, and what types of stories and which ones are, you know, like when the pandemic was going on, there was stuff that was just completely out there free because we wanted the public to be informed. We don't want to hide that behind a paywall. Um, but, you know, it, it, there's a point where we also need subscribers, and it's a, it's a constant give and take, and, and they just haven't figured out that formula quite yet. Another thing I was thinking about as you were talking about the people being loyal print fans and things like that is it seems strange as I think about it. When I was a kid, you know, local news on TV was pretty much the 6 and 11 o'clock news. You maybe got a little bit in the morning before the national shows, but I think when I was in high school, the show that was on before the Today Show, it was only half an hour. It was on 6.30 to 7. It was these two guys, and that was it. There were no reporters running around town or anything like that. And now mm-hmm. we're up to our ears in local news in every market. And what, Channel 19 now goes 3 to 7, I think it is, with their local mm-hmm. news, and four, 12 and 5 go from four to six, including the national news, up till seven o'clock, and then and then uh, five is on to seven o'clock again, with that. But it's weird; they're not they don't seem to be taking up the slack though, because you're still not getting that in-depth coverage you need from the newspaper. Yeah, I mean, what I think what we're kind of getting is that twenty-four hour news cycle now that is it's all over, and so they're having to compete with you know online, and you know you're getting. The different 
networks, including the Inquirer, who are you know tweeting out and sending out alerts to stories, you know, all, all times of the day. It's no longer the newspaper comes at this time and the news is at this time and that's it. And so people, and they're trying to figure out exactly when people could consume news and they they, they track all that stuff. Um, and they're, so most of the stuff is public because that's it is when people do it when they get off work. They're checking their phones and they're reading the news headlines, and so you get a bunch of stuff coming around five, six o'clock, um, early morning before school, before work starts, you know. And then there's a burst at nighttime, and you know, it's it's they are tracking all that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, I think that the on the other end about the content, you know, without the as much money that newspapers used to have, um, you don't have the staff which means you don't have the depth of coverage. And we can't, uh, we've talked about how we can't quite be the newspaper of record anymore of everything that happens. Instead, we have to focus on the things that our readers really want and that we can be good at and excel at those things. Um, and so, you know, we don't have, you may not get the red score in the paper the next morning because it was a night game. But when you do get information, it's going to be more than just the score. It's going to be more analysis and stuff like that. So that's the kind of things that we're having to evolve our coverage as well. So who's, who is going to be the first recorder of history accurately? Because I'm afraid people will look back in 100 years and they'll look at you know, the news resources we had and go, well, is that how it happened? Or isn't? I mean, I guess you could say the same thing. In newspapers were famously skewed back at the turn of the century, but people mm-hmm. kind of knew that and there wasn't as many to go through, you know, like some of the Hearst papers certainly favored certain people and things like that. There was, we had yellow journalism and, you know, there was sensationalism. That stuff's not new, but it just seems like it's going to be more and more difficult to sift through now to get a real accurate assessment of what's going on, you know, today. Yeah, because I think, one, you actually have an incredible volume, you know, and, I mean, Twitter is the most, you know, quick, um, collection of things but you have the types of people who tweet and other types of people who don't tweet and um and then you know you're going to have for every nugget of something that's um key information that you're documenting for this time there's also so-and-so's lunch and you know whatever so it's i think i I don't envy (laughs) the future to try to to cut through all of this stuff Um, we also are more diverse in our um, you know, the, the voices that are out there, you know, so much of older history was, you know, businesses and uh, wealthier people who are, can get stories and, and information in the newspaper. And we're covering so many different areas now that uh, not just us by media, there's so many different things out there. It's going to be a completely different uh, type of picture. Yeah, I guess that's the, the thing they say is, you know, the Internet is great that anybody can tell their story and get their story out. But on the other hand, anybody can tell their story and get their story out, <laughs> right. whether or not that's right. accurate or not. And it's it seems you get to see a lot of people that are pretty averse to facts. Uh, are you active on social media yourself or? No, not that much. I mean, I do some promotion for books and stuff on um, Facebook. Um, but, you know, journalists are generally kind of shy away from from being on so too much social media because of um you know you, you can't get into all those arguments that <laughs> and stuff and it's you know the, the point of journalism is to kind of be uh you know fair and and step back 
and not get into all of that. So I do a lot of lurking. My, my social media is stuff, generally stuff like sharing with family and friends of, you know, what's going on with my life. Not, um, but I'm more of a lurker. I like reading everybody's posts. And <laughs> my brother-in-law does that. Yeah. I have a, a, a Twitter account, but I don't really use it. My boss is, was appalled about that. <laughs> <laughs> do you think that kind of keeps you out of the loop in a way, or do you keep it makes you a better reporter? Because like you said, you're not getting involved in those fights and going down those rabbit holes and such. Well, I mean, I'm not a traditional reporter because my stuff I'm writing about is, you know, older stuff. Um, I think other reporters are much better about being in touch with that, um, especially people like Sherry Coolidge who's in, you know, covering the government and, and stuff like that. And they're a lot more into that. Uh, they're in that world more than I am. My stuff would be if the stuff that's relevant for me is the, you know, Cincinnati then and now Facebook pictures from group of looking at old photos and trying to identify a building and stuff like that, which I like to do, but it's not the same kind of thing. I think that you're, you mean for like, you know, being more in tune with public. Yeah. Um, so did you ever get to do any creative writing? Have you been able to explore that or has the newspaper business kept you too busy? Um, I've actually, um, I've done a few short stories and stuff over the years, but I actually have my uh, a new thing coming out. Um, I think it's going to be announced in the, in the next week or two. Um, I wrote a a, uh, a short eight page comic book um, story that's going to be in this comic um, called Cincinnati Cabinet of Curiosities, and it's uh, this group put a comic book together last year of all these like uh, urban legend kind of things. Um, and this is issue two. And um, Christina Wald is a, a local children's book illustrator and artist, and she did the art. Um, Kevin Necessary did one of the stories, and, and they're doing a Kickstarter campaign. And my story is about um, – I don't want to spell too much of it, but it was about uh, a, a medium, a, a psychic medium in Price Hill um, back in the 20s and 30s. And she was um, – had done a few uh, slate writing seances with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And so it's a little fun little fiction, historic fiction story there. And this was an urban legend or you're saying the other ones were urban legends? Well, other ones, I mean, other ones are like, you know, this monster or a ghost story. And this is, you know, kind of taking the the seance idea and and fictionalizing it. Oh, okay, okay. Actually talking to the ghosts and stuff. So it's based off of, real things but you know some of the other ones and the other the other book was you know a ghost at music hall and uh you know uh, the ohio river mermaid and you know stuff like that that um they're stories but they kind of told them as though they were true but okay and it's kind of a halloween you know uh comic coming out so it's kind of fun to do so what are kind of some interesting stories you've come across historically speaking about cincinnati that surprised you or you think would surprise people? Well, you know, Cincinnati is used to be one of the biggest cities and, and most important cities in the country. And that really is sometimes hard to, <laughs> to picture now. I mean, we have this kind of inferiority complex of, you know, we're not like New York or Chicago or something, you know, we're, and we get overlooked a lot. But in the 1850s, we were the fifth or sixth largest uh, city in the country. We have five presidents from here. Um, we have all of these 
uh, movers and shakers that were kind of coming up, Procter and Gamble and stuff like that. And, and a surprising number of, you know, uh, things that everybody knows about don't realize came from Cincinnati or had connections with Cincinnati. And so that's always fun to kind of come to, you know, make those connections. Um, you know, as an example, this is a, a sports thing. So we talked about that earlier. Um, in 1903, they had these baseball wars going on between the American League and the National League, which were literally separate leagues. They weren't like we think of just two halves of Major League Baseball. And they were stealing players from each other. And Ben Johnson, who was from Lebanon, had founded the American League. And so he was in this whole fight with the National League. And they finally said, we need to come together. And so they had a big meeting at the uh, St. Nicholas Hotel in downtown in Cincinnati. And they got the owners together. And the whole thing was run by uh, Gary Herman, who was the Reds president. And he, in like a day or two, brokered this deal that merged the American League and National League into uh, Major League Baseball as we know it. And they had a three-person commission that oversaw it before they had a baseball commissioner. And the, the head of the... A National League was one of the, the commission members. The head of the American League, who was Ban Johnson, was the other one. And the third person was voted on, and they chose Gary Herman. So you have two-thirds of the leadership of baseball were Cincinnatians in a deal brokered in Cincinnati. <laughs> yeah. And then when the 1919 – Black Sox scandal you know, came out. They went and brought in uh, Kennesaw Mountain Landis to become the first commissioner. And he's from, was it Mainville? So, you know, not that far from here. So you have an awful lot of Cincinnati connections right there in the foundation of baseball as we know it. <laughs> yeah, I knew about Kennesaw Mountain Landis. I did not know that Ben Johnson from, was from Lebanon. Uh, or, you know what? I may have misspoken. Um, I may have been uh, Mount Auburn. But either way, I didn't. I'd know he's from this yeah. part of the country because I know the uh, the American League was formed out of something called the Western League, and I didn't right. think it had any connection to Cincinnati at all. Well, actually, it did because um, who he was working with was um, there was he was there was Comiskey, and he, Comiskey had been um, a Reds manager um, before that, and you know there was a, a ton of stuff. All these guys were at one point were Reds managers or owners or players and stuff. It's it's an amazing number of early Reds in that period um, are pretty pretty well known. You know, uh, Christy Matheson was the manager before going off to World War One, and then they win the World Series while he's you know gassed <laughs> in a training exercise. You know, stuff like that. That uh, you know, we know these names, but we don't make make the Cincinnati connection. <laughs> So when you're doing your archiving and, and such, do you draw from other sources or is it strictly stuff that's appeared in the Inquirer? Like if there's a local paper that goes out of business, do you acquire their archives for historical purposes or is this strictly the one? Well, we don't, ha- we don't have them. We don't keep them. Um, like when the post closed, their archives were sent different places. So okay, um, yeah. But that being said, I do use them, like I mentioned earlier about the public library having in their research databases all these um, – the the post and the, um, the commercial and some of the other ones. And I use those, you know, I go to the Inquirer first because it's the one I'm most familiar with and know where, who the writers were and, and say, okay, I'm looking for this kind of write this kind of report here. Um, 
and I'm familiar with the, the searchability and all that kind of stuff. But uh, no, I, I I try to use as much as I can because it's all information. Um, and it only can only make it stronger by looking at other sources. So what inspires? And I find books at the library. You know, oh. look up. It's amazing. Oh, the other great resource is the uh, um, historical society. They used to have these uh, journals. I didn't mean to cut you off there. I'm sorry. Um, and they've digitized a lot of those as well. And so you get these academic journals going back. 80, 90 years, and you just look up and say, oh, I want to write about the Black Brigade. Oh, yeah, there was an article in 1957 about the Black Brigade, and then you go from there. So what inspires you to, to write certain stories? Is it you're just driving around and see something, or if someone says something in a conversation, and you're like, oh, I'd like to, maybe people would like to know more about that? Yeah, it's pretty much all of that. Uh, you know, sometimes there's anniversaries come up, and you're like, oh, "Okay, we got to cover this because it's 50th anniversary of this or the other." Um, sometimes it's just, "Oh, wow, I didn't know about that." Or my wife will hear something in a podcast, and they're like, "Oh, I didn't know that the Cincinnati had the first ambulance system." You know, it's like, "Oh, okay, I didn't either." You know, so let's go research that, and um, and you know, and then you see it. You know, once you are attuned to things. You suddenly see it everywhere. It's like, oh, wow, look at this Cincinnati connection that I didn't know about. And then you figure out, well, does anybody care about me? <laughs> and then the ones that you think that, that people will be interested in. And then you get these ideas or something gets mentioned or for another story, research something. Um, a few years ago, I was helping a reporter research about those old, the, the resort houses used to be up by the inclines. And uh, like the Lookout House and the Highland House. And one guy tried to bring up a live whale to be a, an attraction. And it's that it was like, wow, that was weird. We need to go research that more. And so a few months ago, I was like, yeah, we, I never actually did more of the research. And so I went and researched that and the disastrous results of trying to bring a live whale to Cincinnati. Wow. that's When was that? Uh, I was 18... 80 or so oh my gosh uh so i did i did an article a few months ago um if you look at um cincinnati.com about the tragic story about the whale the whales on the hill or something like that <laughs> okay well, i've looked up so do you have a big long list of stories that you or little notes you've written down like i might do a story about that sometime or is it kind of hard to choose like those really good stories that they're gonna like you said gonna catch people's attention or is anyone gonna be interested but me yeah, I do keep a list of things um, of, that I'd like to do with some of these days. A lot of times it has to do with like how much time I have because some research takes a lot of time. Other other research is, you know, oh, I can I can do that in a couple of days. Um, and so sometimes it's like, well, I don't have more than a couple of days, so I'm going to have to push that story on. Or, oh, that's a good Halloween kind of story. I'll do that soon. You know, that kind of stuff. You kind of pick and choose. Um but then I also find that I've been doing this long enough that stories that I've written years ago, people haven't heard of because they, they missed it. Um, and case in point, one of the early, first stories I ever did, it was like the third one, I think, was about um, Frontier World. So it was a, oh, yeah. a yeah, proposed um, amusement park by Fess Parker. Yes. But back then, I only had about 200 words of space to write about. And so a few months ago I was like, oh, you know, let me revisit that and go deeper into the archives and, and information and, and kind of blew it up to be a, 
more solid story than a, oh, wow, that's interesting, and say, I don't know what actually happened. And and so I, I do that sometimes, too, kind of revisit a topic that I didn't have enough space to deal with. So where can I find your story on Frontier World? Uh, Cincinnati.com. Okay. Um, ran on there. Um, some of them they've been doing subscriber only recently, um, but there's also, uh, you know, like I said, newspapers.com and some of those things you can kind of find uh, the old papers. Um, okay. And yeah, if you just go to Cincinnati.com and look up uh, Jeff Cease or just Cease, and you'll see my most recent, you know, 20 or 30 articles or something. Okay. Because we were desperately trying to find a logo for Frontier World for. Uh... Uh, no, I haven't found anything. Yeah. Well, I was telling, we had Evan Ponsnigel on a couple of weeks ago, the young man that wrote. Oh, yeah. The, mm-hmm. Yeah, great kid. And uh, boy, he, he really wrote a book. I, you know, I thought, oh, this high school yeah. student wrote a book. And it's like, no, he interviewed like 170 people. And it's a proper book, folks. So I recommend yeah. it. We actually went out and bought it. We, we paid good money for it. And it's well worth it. My daughter's enthralled. But anyway, yeah, we're having I, a discussion. I did the same thing. It, yeah. It's a great book. Yeah. We're discussing with Evan about that. And I explained to him that we um, reached out to the Fess Parker family who still runs the winery out in California. And couldn't be nicer, but they said, we don't have anything, no proposed drawings, nothing from the Frontier World days. But they were very nice about it and said, you know, good luck finding the stuff, but we don't have anything. So um, I guess yeah, what the closest make- I found was proposals for what is now Great America, because um, after it didn't work right. out here, he tried it he in sold it to Marriott, Santa Clara. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, then he sold it to Marriott. And there are some drawings hmm. of that I found online, but it's unclear if it's before or after he sold yeah, yeah. I guess we'll just make one up. I mean, no, no one will know. <laughs> we, could just, uh, we had to do that for uh, Gold Star. They didn't have a logo for when they were Hamburger Heaven, uh, oh. amazingly. And so they just said, just make one. <laughs> we, we won't know because they're one of our partners. So, uh, yeah. All right. Well, yeah. So I, let I'm, me know if we get a Frontier Worlds t-shirt. I will. Well, we, we'll definitely probably have to make one up. I'm going to have to remind our designers uh, to get that sorted. Cause we're, we're, I'm fascinated by the whole Frontier World thing. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fast. That's a, that's a cool. you know that that's actually the first time I I think I ever went into your store was the um, I was doing an article on Plummet Mall. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, you guys had a I had a shirt on Plummet Mall, and yep. then um, but I ended up buying a uh, Maybelline Carew sweatshirt that I wear all the time. Okay, and I yeah. get lots, lots of comments about because I I wrote about Maybelline Carew quite a bit uh, in my first book, um, Moss and Tenati, about all the old. Well, everything is lost now, and all those, you know, it's they built the foundation of you know what is the heart of Cincinnati now by Fountain Square. You know, it was all those Maybelline crew buildings. So, yeah, I um, retroactively had to go back and find out what Plummet Mall was because it was <laughs> uh, it was before my time in Cincinnati. But uh, I remember I I didn't really realize Jerry Galvin, I guess, was the guy that came up with mm-hmm. that. And I'd actually been a guest on his radio show a couple of times, and I worked for the old Everybody's News, so I was able to put two and two together. But yeah, that's that's a fun story to look up, kids. Plummet Mall. Uh, we have a little bit under the description on our shirt, but I'm sure there's more to be found out there. Yeah, well, I, I did an interview with both of them, him and Jay. Um, about it, it was at the anniversary. I forget what year that was. Now it was about five years ago or so. Um, they gave me all the rundown on it and their original ideas and stuff. It's, it's quite fun. I'm sure that's online somewhere too. Yeah. Uh, so what are you doing when you're not doing archiving and, and writing? Uh, well, um, I have a 10-year-old, so I'm doing lots of, you know, taking her places. Um, I'm a big uh, comic fan and 
I like lots of reading and been trying to do some more fiction writing just to get back into it since, you know, that's my background. Um, and uh, I just finished a project um, that's not about Cincinnati, a writing project um, that um, probably hopefully announce more about in the next few weeks. Um, but I, I turned in the manuscript and uh, it's, it's, I will just say it's Disneyland related. <laughs> oh, interesting. Oh, that's, that's also oh. straight in our basket. Well, very good. All right. Well, can't wait. Uh, you have to keep me posted on that. Uh, well, mm-hmm. this has been great. Uh, I learned a lot about the newspaper business and newspaper librarians and history and, and stuff like that. And for folks like who want to look up your rising, like you said, Cincinnati.com is the place to go. Yeah, Cincinnati.com. And then, you know, I, I've written several books now. Um, so jeffseas.com, um, cause a lot of this stuff gets, you know, embellished or, or not, not, not like just stories redone or anything like that. But, you know, it's, um, I did a, a book, um, a timeline of Cincinnati where I covered everything from the first Indian mounds to Fiona and everything in between. Ah, cool. And so it's, um, it's a wide range of topics from sports to crime to politics oh, and, and everything. And what book is that? So, it's Cincinnati, an illustrated timeline. Oh, great. I'll have to check that out. That sounds straight in my basket. I'm a big fan of the Indian mounds and, and all that stuff. And so, yeah, I'll have to check that out. So the only uh, order of business we have left here is as the podcast guest, you get to choose the coupon code that our listeners can use at either CincyShirts.com or the two stores in Over the Rhine and Hyde Park or our sibling site, OldSchoolShirts.com. Uh, it can be a single word. It can be a couple of word phrase. Uh, so what would you like the coupon code to be, Jeff? Um, I'll give this a bit of a hint to the other project I was talking about. So let's make the, the, the word Tomorrowland. Ooh, oh my gosh, my favorite part of the park. All right. Terrific. Tomorrowland it is, folks. All right, great. Well, Jeff, appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to be with us today and to talk about uh, Cincinnati and the Inquirer and history and all that fun stuff. Oh, well, thanks for having me. It was, it was a lot of fun. Great. And uh, keep me posted on the, on the, the, the Tomorrowland Disney mystery book. Uh, I think it's something I'll be, I'm going to be into. Great. All right. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, thank you. Right, thanks for having me. I work for the newspapers. Any news is good news, I always say. But I don't write no daily column talk. is cheap, and so is my pay. And when my work day's over, I pocket five or ten from the tray. And then I start it up again at 5 a.m. I stack them up just to throw them away. Jeff Cease, pretty sure I've used this as a playout song before for someone else involved in the newspaper business, Stan Ridgway, formerly of Wall of Voodoo there, uh, from his solo album Mosquitoes, I believe. That was from 1989. It's, if you like Wall of Voodoo, it's a little less intense, so it might be more your cup of tea, and that's probably the best track from the album. I believe it was a single as well. Do check it out. Also check out Jeff's work, of course, at Cincinnati.com. All kinds of good stories there about the history of Cincinnati and all the neat things in our area. If there's someone you'd like to hear on the show, simply email us, podcast at CincyShirts.com. 
podcastguest.com, put podcast guest in the subject line, then maybe give us two or three sentences about why you think that person would be a good guest for the show. You can nominate yourself if you like. Uh, someone nominated themselves from California and said they're an SEO expert. And while that would be great, one, we had an SEO expert on, the, the fine Dan McCabe. And secondly, we need someone that's more involved in Cincinnati. But uh, that was a nice suggestion. Uh, ground already covered, though. But yeah, give us your suggestion. There's all kinds of folks that we have yet to talk to, certainly. Also, be sure to tell friends and loved ones about the show, including folks who may no longer live in the area but still feel connected to the tri-state. And if you haven't already, as always, check out those Cincy Shirt podcast archives for me, won't you? From Johnny Bench to actress Amy Asbeck, there's just tons of great episodes back there. Now, today's show is produced by me with help from Josh and Darren. Our theme music is Cincinnati by Big Nothing. They are from Philadelphia, and you can find their music on Apple Music, Spotify, Google Play, wherever you get your music. Check those guys out, please. They are very kind to let us use their song for our theme. Find vintage cheese from great places like Philadelphia, Phoenix, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Louisville, Seattle, tons more at oldschoolshirts.com. It's like Cincy shirts, but for those towns, so like old defunct teams, shopping malls, TV personalities, all that sort of affair. So you're looking for a gift for somebody from one of those towns, or you're from that town, you miss your hometown, check out old school shirts. And again, the promo code for this episode is Tomorrowland. I can't wait to see what that's about. That sounds like it's straight in my basket. Tomorrowland, all one word, uh, uppercase, lowercase, that part does not matter. Use that at CincyShirts.com or OldSchoolShirts.com or in our stores and over the Rhine and Hyde Park. Say, I want to use the podcast code Tomorrowland and you can take 20% off your next purchase until the next episode drops. And there's a new podcast code. Follow our social channels, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat for the latest in C-Shirts news. Tell your friends about the show. Give us a good review wherever you get the podcast from. And as always, download or stream us next time. Bye.